Drilling fluids touch just about everything in the drilling process. We're here to deconstruct the drilling process and drilling fluid concepts to provide a deeper understanding of our industry. In each episode, we'll share information, talk to interesting people, and maybe share a few stories along the way. Welcome to The Flow Line, a production of AES Drilling Fluids, brought to you by Matt Offenbacher and Justin Gautier. And hey, I want to remind everyone that AES will be hosting our inaugural A Simple Promise Golf Classic on Friday, November 18th, 2022. This golf tournament will benefit Simple Promise Farms, which is an amazing organization close to our hearts. If you or any companies would like to participate, there are still a few spots left to register. For more information, please see the link in the show notes. And thank you so much in advance for your generosity. We really look forward to seeing you there. Thanks. And we're back. Welcome to another episode of The Flowline. Matt, we're coming off a hot weekend, a long one at that. You know, again, this will be released probably after the next round of playoffs. But tell us about the 18th inning wonder. My goodness, Jeremy Pena. I don't know. This is probably my words coming back to haunt me in a good way. (laughs) So I was there at game one when Jordan hit the incredible walk off. Ah, yeah. But Pena had to get on base for all that to happen, right? And he swung at the most obvious slider. (laughs) And I said to everybody around me, this guy can't lay off a slider to save his life. (laughs) Okay. Which is generally true. And then what did he do? He hit a slider into... Oh, it was a slider. Oh, yeah. And, and I it didn't was, know the details. It, yeah, a better location for sure. Like, it was hittable, obviously. Yeah. It was an up and down pitch. He approached it great. So it was wow. one of those like... Amazing. And since then, the guy's been nothing but clutch with, you know, a game that everyone was just sort of, at, I think at some point, hoping it would just end. Right. But hitting a home run in the 18th inning of a playoff <laughs> game. sounds insane. You know, man. it's like 2 a.m. or whatever in, what was it? It wasn't that late, but it was, I'm forgetting my time zones here. <laughs> yeah. But it just seemed like it had to have been so late over there, but I think it was mainly because the game started so early. Yeah. So Pena homers, we take the lead. Garcia in his fifth inning of relief closes out the game. Jeez. Astros sweep and get to get ready for the ALCS. So it was one for the books, although I think most people don't appreciate 17 innings of scoreless baseball. Right, yeah, and that's the thing. It would have been cool if it was like 9-9 or like, you know what I mean? But like 0-0 for 18 innings. Well, and it was one of those like, you got to hand it to the pitchers, but once you get into extra innings, everybody's trying so hard that bats were terrible. Right. And so it was one of those, like, I don't know if these hitters actually want to win the game or not. Yeah. But <laughs> what a crazy. Oh. All's well that ends well. Yeah. I'll take it. No kidding. And so what's your bets on tonight? Because it's 2-2, right? For Cleveland and New York. Yeah. I mean, going into it, I thought it was a pretty clear Yankees advantage. Yeah. But Cleveland has shown some grit. And I still think the Yankees will pull it off just because they're our nemesis. And right. I feel like it's the way it has to be or something. But I would say that like I'm just so impressed with Cleveland and their grit, you know, walk off win last time or two games ago. They've had some great outings where in a way I don't want to face them while they're hot, but in another way, I don't know, that might be an interesting matchup. No I just kidding. feel like we're cursed to deal with the Yankees and the ALCS. Well, it would sure bring some buzz here to Houston if the Yankees came here for the first two games. So either way, it's going to be hot, heavy, and just full of intense baseball from here on in. So I'm excited, and hopefully the fans are too. And if you're not a Houston Astros fan, well, sorry you had to listen to the first three and a half minutes of uh, talking about Astros. But if you've listened for long enough, you knew it was coming. So Matt, you know, again, 
for the listeners, we've gone through the Why Matt Hates series. And just when you think Matt doesn't hate something, boom, comes back with another one. Today, we're talking about why Matt hates extreme pressure testing. We're not talking about canning goods. We're talking about extreme pressure. Well, Matt, why don't you explain what extreme pressure testing is? So, you know, we talk a lot about lubricants. And one aspect of lubricity isn't just overall coefficient of friction, but it's this thing called extreme pressure where you're basically trying to determine the film strength of a lubricant. Think about this. Go all the way back to like your engine, like metal on metal wear. So under those extreme conditions, over and over again, a piston and a cylinder, what have you, does that film remain strong enough so you don't have metal on metal wearing away? Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. So for us, it's pipe on pipe, except for oil field, and so we make a much bigger mess with it. (laughs) Sure. But EP testing is one way to measure what's called the film strength. I've sort of described it, but if you want to get fancy... And if you know anything, you know we like to get fancy. Ah, yes. There's this thing called the Strybeck curve. And it's kind of the study of lubricants. You basically put a graph of the coefficient of friction versus what's called the Hersey number, which is a function of viscosity, entrainment speed, and basically the load of contact. Basically, what you're trying to graph is you get three areas of lubrication. One is like boundary lubrication where two surfaces are touching. And then you kind of get mixed lubrication, and that's kind of where you're starting to actually have a film support the contact areas a little bit, but there's still some metal-on-metal touching. And then you have hydrodynamic lubrication, which is where we want to be, where the surfaces aren't actually touching because that film is actually supporting the load and keeping the two things from abrading against one another, right? Gotcha. So where the lubricant doesn't break down under pressure, wouldn't this be a cool thing to know and maybe design around if we were hoping to extend pipe life? to have sustained lubricity. The concept is very exciting and cool. And there are special additives that will contribute to this. They also have to be very, very expensive. But you sort of see the potential here. Yeah, no, because that's a one big thing too. And especially as, you know, oil prices have gone up and everyone's like, well, maybe we should switch to water-based mud. But oh, wait, we have to drill two miles. And there's a lot of, you know, friction happening down there when you're on water. And so this topic is hot and heavy, especially when there's folks looking at going to water-based solutions and swapping out for oil-based mud. And so, yeah, it's something we've, regardless of that environment, we're constantly doing testing. And so, Matt, as something that you've clearly done time and time again, like before we talk about why you're not necessarily a big fan or what sort of the limiters are, why don't you go and explain actually how you test for something like this? So in the oil field, I think we're all used to that traditional lubricity meter that you see with the torque wrench and the cup, all that. And we've described that, but What you have is you have a rotating ring, you have a block, you turn a torque wrench, and you're pressing the two against each other and it's all immersed in fluid. So this, like all things, was stolen from other industries and adapted to the oil field. But you can adapt that machine where instead of having a smooth ring, you actually have a ring with a a set groove on it. And instead of using a block that has a little bit of a curve in it to fit the ring, you just use a perfectly faced block. And then what you do is you apply torque. So you're basically pressing the groove in that ring against that metal block and you increase your torque. And eventually you're going to increase torque so much that this thing's just going to seize up, right? Metal jams into metal and locks up. And then what you do is you take the whole thing apart and you actually measure the scar, the impression that was left by those two surfaces pressing together. You measure the dimensions on that block you know how much force you applied, you're going to go ahead and do some math and you should get a film strength in pounds per square inch. So conceptually, that makes sense too, right? And so 
And I mean, like when you're doing this test, you'll know because it's so loud. <laughs> There's sometimes smoke coming off the machine. It is not a subtle test. Right. But it's one of these things that you can use a very common piece of equipment and you buy a few extra pieces and you can run this test on a very common piece of kit that most mud labs have. Sure. Okay. So with that being said, Matt, when you're saying you're applying torque, is that something that's sort of digital where you push a button and it torques more? Or is it something you're like physically or like manually applying torque? So you're manually, there's basically like a handle you can turn and it presses the torque wrench against. Okay. And you can read the torque reading. Gotcha. Okay. Well, I mean, then the obvious question comes, Matt, why do you hate this type of testing? Well, <laughs> you know, one of the really frustrating things is it's pretty arbitrary and it's difficult to repeat. There's a lot of error in these tests because you're taking the measurement of a scar or an impression and you're extrapolating that little surface area, which it's going to be like a gouge, maybe an eighth of an inch wide, maybe a quarter of an inch wide and an eighth of an inch tall. And you're going to extrapolate that into thousands of PSI of film strength. It could vary a bit. Not only that, so the great value you extract out of this block is you can use all four sides, right? You rotate it. Mm -hmm. The ring, when it gouges in, I mean, its surface is affected too. And one of the things that we've seen other people do that we got with the vendors who make these machines and stuff, we had to get into this. A lot of the instructions basically say, don't reuse the ring. So if you don't have a cup of a bunch of used rings, you're not properly testing EP data. And of course, those rings are plenty expensive. It takes some work to get them everything lined up. But you're going to go through a ton of them if you're trying to do EP testing. You know, the other thing is just the procedure. So I'm not going to name names, but this is probably pretty obvious. There's two major vendors of oil field testing equipment out there. There are others, but there's probably two pretty well-known ones. And they have two different procedures for what is seemingly the exact same piece of equipment or close enough. Yeah. So one of them, you basically... Measure until it seizes, back everything off, measure the scar width and height, do some math. Another one that I think I'm a little more in favor of, or I'm definitely more in favor of, is you do that same thing and then you actually back off and you run the test again until right before it's like, let's say 50 foot pounds below where it seized and measure the scar there. So you're not where it, you know, locks up yeah. where you could overdo it and maybe show stronger film strength than you really have. Yeah. And here you assume that the groove is the height of the groove on the ring, which I also think makes sense and makes things less arbitrary. So you're just measuring the width of the scar and doing your math that way. But it's two different procedures, two different published procedures. Yeah. So I can say the EP rating on the, or the film strength is X thousands of PSI. And I'm not lying to you. Like, do I pick the procedure I prefer? Right. There's that. There are other testers out there, but they're all over the place too. So you kind of need, these tests take a while. You need to run a number of them to get a grouping of reliable data that you can say, it is generally within this many thousands of PSI range, film strength. I'm confident of that at this point. Yeah. There are other testers out there. We've seen one and you basically just kind of like pull a lever and they're like, hey, it's 200,000 PSI. Then we measured it and we got like 70,000 PSI. That's a pretty big difference. Oh, kidding. And we're pretty confident on our numbers because of repeatability and that sort of thing. Some of these will only let you test something in isolation as opposed to in mud. Do you run 100% EP additive? No. You couldn't afford it. I mean, even you 
really rich guy <laughs> or gal or whatever, you know, oligarch or chic or whoever you want to be. Yeah. <laughs> we wouldn't do it to show off our wealth. So like you got to account for so many other factors as far as what's in the mixture or the drilling fluid formulation along with the concentration I'm likely to run it at. Yeah. You know, we're always looking for those sweet spots and there's these interactions, favorable or unfavorable. And so those need to be included. So it's not the same thing as just pouring some on a spinning wheel and it's thick and it sticks to everything. And you know, it's not going to do that on your pipe. Anyways, there's other EP testers out there. But at the end of the day, our sort of industry accepted position is this one tester with two different procedures and lots of confusion. <laughs> okay. So, so that's the part I really hate about this is it's very easy to say this lubricant has extreme pressure properties. And then you say, okay, what number did you get? How did you measure it? And not only what tester did you use, but did you follow the procedure correctly? Right. Do you know the procedure? And so what we find is you can make claims that are all over the place and you're not lying, but they're horrifically inconsistent where the data is just worthless. Yeah. So it's frustrating to hear some of these claims, especially with hopefully the potential to extend pipe life and do some of these other really cool things. Because you have to find that economic sweet spot to make all this work. I mean, we don't have some great content to work with as far as data. Right. So that is why I very, very much hate the EP tester and kind of the situation we're, I don't want to say stuck with, but the challenge you have is, let's say you find the best EP tester out there and you know it. You're the only one that has it, which means everybody else has to buy one too before you can compare with them. Right. So it's like, the lubricity tester is really well accepted mainly just because everybody has one, right? Even the LEM that we have, the lubricity evaluation monitor, they're much more expensive, but most large size mud companies have one. These were not there. Yeah. And a lot of the stuff's for automotive, it's for other things. And so they're interesting, but they have to be adapted to drilling fluids. So you're probably stuck with serial number one of one. Right. So yeah, I'm putting myself in the listener's shoes. It's like, okay, yeah, you've explained you know, in theory, it sounds great because mm -hmm. you obviously want to test extreme pressure and because that tells us or allows us to compare, you know, different lubes, whatever the case may be. And then from an R&D perspective, I would imagine it's used to kind of come up with the answer amongst other things. But do you still think it's valid or do you think when evaluating a lubricant, you should just not worry about that and then focus on other tests? I think they're valid. I don't think there's anything false about EP properties. My main concern is the way we share information and the risk of misleading somebody or not properly capturing the value. Like you mentioned before, a lot of the testing that we do and a lot of what we do in the oil field is kind of taking bits and pieces from other industries. And so yeah. conceptually, it makes sense. And we've even had customers that you know want to hang their hat on some of this type of testing. And it's without proper education or at least explanation as to the limitations like a lot of what we do for the podcast is making sure that we create awareness around certain things to where you may have had some serious conviction on the way you test certain things because of maybe you dealt with a certain, whether it's a lube company or some certain product company, specialty products, but be aware that this is not the only answer. It's part of the solution, perhaps of evaluation, but it's not the only thing you should focus on. And if you do, there's clearly some things you have to consider or at least ask the questions, the proper questions, if someone's presenting you with this type of data. Yeah. I mean, I just want the industry to get better at this. That's sort of where I'm at. And, and you know what? AES Drilling Fluids has its way and we're open to other ideas and we're happy to argue with people. But it's just frustrating that we can't come around and sort of 
be consistent. And lubricants have the same problem, right? I harp on it all the time. We want to be able to show performance. And look, even if I had some great EP additive, still got to get it on a rig, right? And think about how long it's going to take to determine if it's really helping with pipe life. Yeah. You know, was it bad directional on one well that caused some excess wear or was it, you know, so it's going to take a huge sample space with something that may have, you know, a narrow benefit and hopefully the value is there. It's going to be difficult to prove. It's going to take time. Yeah. But even step one of showing that a lubricant has good EP properties is a hot mess. Well, I think that's a perfect way to drop the mic. And if for anyone out there that has any thoughts around this or is involved in this arena, let us know and we'd be happy to, like you said, Matt's always willing to argue, but Matt's open-minded enough to at least listen to folks. If there's something out there that you may find beneficial or if you just want to share a story on some testing that maybe you've done and you've got maybe something in your garage that you've rigged up over COVID that you just can't wait for a mud company to try, let us know. Yeah, <laughs> let's put her to work. Right? Cool. Matt, any closing last words for the listeners? I'm open-minded for now, but I continue to age. And as I get older, just be aware that I'll probably get more stubborn and tell you to get off my lawn. Right, yeah. (laughs) And talking about age, we actually, if you've just subscribed, and this may be your first episode, I encourage you to go back. We actually had the pleasure of interviewing Mr. Larry Offenbacher on the show last episode or uh, depending on when this gets released. But I encourage you to listen to it. You know, and that's Matt's dad. He shared some wonderful stories about his early days in the oil field traveling the world and having Matt on his back along with him. And so uh, it was just an absolute pleasure. So I encourage you to, to go back, listen to that episode for some just great stories. You know, he did spend most of his time on the directional drilling and the sort of bit R&D side. But again, it was just an absolute pleasure. So if anyone listens, Go back. If you did listen to it, shoot us a note and let us know what you think. It'd be super cool to share that with Matt's dad. And with that being said, thanks for all the support, all the reviews and everything else that you've done to support the show. If you want to hook up with us, go on LinkedIn. You can find Matt and I. Or if you want to shoot us a message, something a little more private, hit us up at the Flowline Podcast at AESFluids.com. Go Astros. And with that said, take care for now. Thanks, everybody. Go Astros. Thanks for listening. Please tune in next week for another exciting episode of the Flowline. And remember, may your returns always be full and your trips always smooth. Views expressed in this program belong to participants and not their employees. The program is for informational purposes only and cannot take the place of seeking professional advice. Copyright AES Drilling Fluids.